Hi, I'm David Rothkopf, the CEO of the DSR Network and host of the Deep State Radio podcast. Here at DSR, we have always believed that in a world as complex, fast-moving, and full of risks as ours, we all need access to the best minds. That is why we have created the leading network for expert podcasts on the issues of the day you care about. We go in-depth on politics, the law, national security, foreign policy, intelligence, defense, climate, and new technologies with regular and special guests that are the leading voices in their fields. We also offer daily updates on global news, our DSR Daily, and on a key story of the day through our partnership with the New Republic. That is why over a million times a month, people like you choose to spend time with our hosts and guests. Membership is what supports this, and members get special benefits, including bonus content in virtually all of our podcasts. It's a big deal, and it's a good deal. Our monthly membership price is going to go up for the first time in our history on March 1st. So now is the time you can lock in our founder's rate of just $5 a month. To do so, go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership. It's that easy, but don't delay. Today's rates will only be available for a few more weeks. Join us, support us. Go to the dsrnetwork.com right now. Thank you. Nine, 12, 10. 28-2-23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. It's that time of the week when we get to talk about legal issues with uh, one of our very favorite legal commentators and thinkers. That's Dahlia Lithwick, who you know as an award-winning journalist and author, senior editor at Slate, host of the Amicus podcast, which is Slate's bi-weekly podcast about law and the Supreme Court. <laughs> How are you doing today, There Dahlia? was a time... Hi, David. It's good to be back. I mean, there was a time... When I thought my beat was just the Supreme Court, you may remember those days. We used to have weekends off. We used to have summers off unless somebody died. There was no (laughs) breaking news on a Friday night. And now, between the law of Trump and the court itself and just the general mayhem of the legal news, I just like I long for the relatively tranquil days of Justice Scalia. Yeah, oh, those good old days. Scalia, the opera. <laughs> the opera. You know, we're all friends. We all caring about other. caring about the saying he cared about the constitution and actually knowing what the constitution was. But you know, I have to say, you know, you're very busy and yet you have the temerity to have written an article um about Biden's age that was better than all the articles written by all the full-time political pundits, including the ones written by me. Uh, and we are deeply full of resentment because you did a much better job of capturing um, the stupidity of this debate. 
Uh, thank you for that. I think I was just so grumpy. And that was already a week ago, right? Like the news cycle has gone even stupider on the ageism and the, um, but Biden's <laughs> sometimes forgets words-ism. Um, it's hard to, it's hard to express the horror of how dumb our news cycles have become and that things that are important are minuscule. Trump inviting invasion of NATO countries. That was not good. Doesn't get a second. That was a good. Um, or Trump comparing himself to Navalny. You're a legal that scholar. Amazing. That's probably a bad analogy, right? But enough about Putin murdering people. Let's talk about me and how I'm the victim of a witch hunt. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess I will just say this and we can we can move on from Biden. But it is so, I guess the point of the piece was just that it is so interesting to me that the same folks who completely discount the army of competent, intelligent, science-based, reasoned people who help Biden be Biden are the ones who just keep saying, don't worry about Trump because there's going to be all these moderating influences on him. Like, what? <laughs> pick a lane, right? I mean, pick a lane. And I think one of the things, and we can talk about it or not, David, but I think that in the many, many things that are not getting enough airtime in the news cycle, this like 2025 project these complete and total nutty Christian nationalists who are going to step in because there's no rational people to step in to advise Trump. These folks are on this juggernaut to restore us to some imaginary time where women are judges and families are families and everybody is Christian. But the fact that that isn't getting the kind of attention that it should of who has sort of surged into the vacuum of what could be leadership in the next administration and how bonkers they are, that's, I mean, that should be a every minute of every day story. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. You started out thinking you were on a judiciary beat and you're now on the theocracy beat. Uh, and, you know, when you look at what happened uh, this week, there were several examples of it. There was this Alabama case uh, where they determined that, um, um, uh, a f you know, fertilized fetus, and by fetus, you know, it, it can be as few as nine cells, you know, which is, you know, nine cells. Uh, um, had, it was a baby and had, you know, full set of rights. Um, and then there, there was an interview with this judge that I saw that said that he believed in, and what is this, this seven mountain principle, which, you know, is a, is a, is a, is a kind of theocratic belief system that suggests that it is the obligation of people who believe in it to impose Christian values through their positions in the government. And just as a footnote to that, before I, I hear your comment on it, which I'm interested in, um, you, you also had uh, you know, a comment that we saw this week from Justice Alito talking again about Obergfell and um, you know, that, that, that the principles that ought to be guiding us uh, include biblical principles, which is not just 
you know, um, a constitutional. It's contra constitutional, as far as I can tell. But but how do you how do you react? To me, this is like mind blowingly outrageous. It's up there with Trump saying, "Invade NATO, take Europe." You know, it's it's like I can't believe that this is happening and people are accepting it. I, I think the thing I want to say, David, and I, I'm trying to write this piece today and I'm a little bit stuck, so forgive me if I spitball, but I think that we make the mistake of th- thinking these are all sort of aberrational one-off moments, you know, what I like to call like bridge instances, but of course they're all of a piece, right? And so all, every one of, you know, whether it's Alito saying, you know, oh, it's so unfair for people who want to discriminate against LGBTQ Americans not to be allowed to be on juries because that's a violation of their religious faith, right? That's what his quote unquote statement said. Um, or Justice Tom Parker, as you say, of the Alabama Supreme Court, who quite literally <laughs> His opinion in this Alabama uh, embryos case cites like Genesis, Jeremiah, Thomas Aquinas, John Calvin, right? There's like nobody that he doesn't cite uh, for the proposition that, you know, it is public policy of the state, he writes, to recognize and support the sanctity of unborn life and the rights of unborn children, including the right to life, because this is, you know, we're all afraid, he says, that we're going to incur the wrath of God, right? Like, it is unbelievable that here's where we are. At the same time, you know, we're, we're seeing Oklahoma trying to pass legislation that would uh, keep track of every single person who had an abortion. And all this stuff, including uh, trans bans, all of it, is just a straight line from Dobbs, right? And you and I spoke after Dobbs when the Supreme Court overturned Roe. And I remember saying, you know, are we really going to accept the court promising us that it's okay? We overturned Roe, but we're not coming after anything else. And there was Clarence Thomas in his concurrence being like, oh, we sure are coming after. Let me list for you the cases. And like a bunch of dummies, we're all acting surprised now that they're coming after everything else. And whether it's uh, surrogacy, IVF, contraception, marriage equality, whatever it is, they're coming after it. And the idea that this is surprising to us because the Supreme Court court promised us in Dobbs that they were going to limit it to abortion. Like this is like Lucy football in robes. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, it is kind of insane. You know, I was talking to somebody who's a medical doctor about this the other day. And I said, you know, the natural next step from, you know, granting uh, the, the, the legal nomenclature of life to nine uh, cells that are fertilized um, is you know making it Ill- illegal to you know take somebody to dinner have a bottle of wine and give them some roses because that inevitably leads to those nine cells getting fertilized um and as ludicrous as that may seem you know contraception are we really here you know i mean they're talking about it in a serious way ivf clinics are shutting down now in alabama um and i see people you know and they go you know, they've got, uh, you know, all sorts of memes, you know, that are referring to uh, science fiction stories. 
but this is happening and there doesn't seem like anything is going to stop it from happening for for some time to come i mean this supreme court um is going to have this majority for a long time despite john oliver's efforts to buy clarence thomas off of it last weekend I mean, I think once you're in the realm of what the Alabama opinion references as, quote, extrauterine children, right? I think we just have to accept that we are in a complete theological world in which only some of us are welcome, right? And and the rights of the rest of us are secondary. The other thing that's really worth saying, David, and I think this is important, is those, it was one Alabama clinic yesterday, a a second clinic closed today or stopped giving IVF services, is this is exactly the same chilling effect that we saw after Dobbs, right? There's two things that are happening. One is there's no way, you know, this case in Alabama is the result of somebody dropping right? <laughs> Dropping on the floor and therefore murdering these extrauterine children. There's no way a clinic can operate. We don't know after this opinion how you could possibly dispose of fertilized embryos. We don't know what would happen if in thawing an embryo, you were to destroy it. Are you, you know, on the hook for, for murder? And so there's no well, way. Or, or if it, typically in IVF, what they do is they fertilize several. So what if you use one? Are you then on the hook for the lives of the half a dozen you don't use? Well, presumably the 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 parents are on the hook until they stop paying at which point the clinic is on the hook for, you know, millions and millions of So there's I guess what I'm saying is this is you may remember Jonathan Mitchell, he was the big brain behind SB8, that Texas vigilante bill, right, that allowed people to uh, bring civil suits against anyone who aided and abetted an abortion. The point here is to chill service providers, right? It's to make it so costly for them to continue to be in business. It is not worth the risk. And so it's not simply and I know you and I've talked about this before, but this is an example again in Alabama, not just of terrorizing professionals out of providing the services that are desperately needed. It's also terrifying and isolating people who are desperately in need of services. I mean, imagine someone who has been scrimping and saving for years and is partway through IVF, injecting themselves partway through IVF for a much wanted baby in Alabama. And now the clinics are closing. And so I think it's just this dual power move, one of threatening to bankrupt anyone who does anything that is lawful. It's lawful to do IVF. It's lawful to provide abortions. And then at the same time, isolating and terrifying people who simply want to make reproductive decisions that until Dobbs were protected under the Constitution. And so it's it's easy to say, and this is, I guess, where I keep landing on this, oh, but that's Alabama, right? It's just Oklahoma. It's just Missouri. It's just Texas. But I think that this is planting the seeds for fetal personhood, right? This is planting the seeds for Donald Trump taking office and saying uh, abortion is legal around the country, or we're going to use the stupid Comstock Act, which the court, you know, the courts are interested in reviving this this long defunct anti-pornography act. I mean, there are ways if you want to 
turn back the clock 100 years. There are ways to do it very quickly. And the idea that, you know, we're safe in New York or we're safe in Massachusetts or we're safe in California, these folks have national plans. They do not stop at the border of Alabama. Yeah. And you've got um, a guy who once had sort of semi um, uh, New Yorkish views on abortion, Donald Trump, who is now apparently about to adopt the, a nationwide ban as his policy. Um, and we have reports this week that he is planning to surround himself with sort of Christian nationalist advisors who have demonstrated they will take these things to the absolute extreme uh, and that their goal will be to nationalize them. You, you know, you, there's this idea that it's this state or that state you know, you will end up with a national abortion ban. You will end up with a national contraception ban. You will end up reversing Obergefell and people will lose their ability to marry the person that they want to marry and, and, and so forth. And it's solely because Christian nationalists are the group that Donald Trump can depend on the most. They don't care about Ukraine, Russia, corruption, anything in the world except their very, very narrow religious agenda. And Trump doesn't care about that. So it's a, you know, it's a marriage made in hell. It, it's, it's a perfect symbiotic nihilism. And what's very scary, and I think this is really important, is that if you look at all the polling, this fanatical religious extremism is dying out around the country, right? You can't win in the ballot box. And so what you do is you capture the courts, right? You capture state Supreme Courts. You get Republican attorneys general seated who are willing to push this. And I think that one of the things we have to think about it, if we can back up enough to see it from 40,000 feet, is that this is a minoritarian agenda that is being imposed, and it's being imposed, and this is where it braids together with the ethics stuff you and I've talked about so often in the past. But it's because people like Leonard Leo have very wealthy donors because there are groups, a handful of groups, that have made it their business to insinuate their way not just into the courts, but into the priorities and values of the justices. And that this is a court that in a deep, deep sense, I mean, you said it, Donald Trump seated three of these justices. This is a court that is totally out of step on issue after issue with American mainstream values. And it doesn't matter because it's a court that's been bought and paid for by those interests. And many of the people who are those interests, and we don't like talking about this because America didn't used to be this kind of country hold very extreme religious views, the, the Leonard Leo crowd, whether it's Opus Dei or some of these other kinds of groups, the, the group that um, Justice Barrett is affiliated with and so forth. And, and, you know, in the past, we didn't really talk about it because we were supposed to set that stuff aside. And yet these people are absolutely dedicated to making it central. And so there is this other symbiosis, which is they get to do that because our old values told us to put it aside and not to talk about it when we really need to be talking about it a lot. 
Right. And I think that there has been such a longstanding sense that it's unseemly to talk about it in public discourse, in uh, civic discourse. And, you know, you'll remember how awkward Justice Barrett's hearings were, even Professor Barrett's hearing when she was uh, being seated at the Seventh Circuit. You know, how do we talk about these issues and not both violate, you know, the religious test that precludes us from taking religion into account, but also having this awkward conversation about whether you put your religion before your sort of judicial uh, neutrality. And I think you're exactly right, David, that in failing to have a robust national conversation about religion and the role of religion in civic life, we kind of let nature abhors a vacuum and we let it fill the vacuum. And now we are doing this weird rear guard action where we're saying to ourselves, but they can't possibly be coming after birth control. They can't possibly be coming after the morning after pill. And all you need to do is look at, you know, the Supreme Court is hearing not one, but two major abortion cases this spring, neither of which could have been heard of, thought of uh, five years ago, but in much the same way that the Alabama Supreme Court is just counting on having five or six votes at the court to say that a fertilized embryo is a human life. Judge Matthew Kaczmarek in Texas is counting on having five votes at the Supreme Court to say that the FDA should pull Mifepristone, right? I mean, this is very much an effort of carefully seated judges at every layer of the judiciary and at state Supreme Courts that are absolutely willing to like turn, blow the Overton window open and force the court to take on issues, whether or not the American public believes they're coming, they're coming. And in in what is kind of the shocking and I think un, un, ex, un uh, examined corollary to all of this. Simultaneously, through their contemplation and and likely uh, decision on on this Chevron case, they want to strip away the ability of the government to regulate corporations. They want to enhance the ability of the courts to regulate the lives of women, particularly in America, but others. Um, and as they constrain those freedoms, they want to grant unlimited freedoms to non-humans. I mean, there is in this, between this debate of a definition of what's a human and what they want to give to non-human, imaginary people, corporations, it's, it's just unbelievably striking. And should, you know, the, the Chevron, I've talked to everybody, I'm like, hey, folks, Clean water, clean air—you know the, the the things that the government is supposed to do. Make sure the wings stay stuck to the side of the airplane. There, you know, they 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 want to take that away, and it's got multiple effects. An, another of which is if they overturn that, this will produce the biggest windfall in corporate profits that we have seen in recent American history. The corporations will never want to give it back. They will channel that money via Citizens United back into these political campaigns, and it will drive inequality in America. 
in really extraordinary ways. Hey, our friends at the New Republic, PEN America, and the American Library Association are staging a special event in April to fight the book bans that are sweeping our country. Uh, at the event, they will unveil the annual list of the top 10 most challenged books of the year and support authors who have been censored. Uh, as part of this Right to Read celebration, uh, the sponsors will also be naming the winners of the Tony Morrison Courage Award for people on the front lines standing up against book bans. Please support this urgent First Amendment cause by visiting tnr.com slash donate. That's donate with an exclamation point. This is one of the most important battles for American democracy being fought today. Please make your voice heard by visiting tnr.com backslash donate today. So, so here's where everything you said about, you know, fringe religious groups that only have one agenda. All of that is true of corporations that, right, famously, if you do this psychological profile, are sociopaths, right? <laughs> they have no, uh, you know, capacity for empathy. They have no capacity for, you know, generosity of spirit, right? So here we have exactly the same problem you described earlier, which is they don't care about Russia. <laughs> they don't care about NATO. They don't care about global warming. They care about profits. That's it. In fact, in fact, one could argue that they are legally obligated not to care about any of those things right. and to only care about return to shareholders. Hence the sociopathy, right? This is the right. this is the definition. And so by the same token that you have nihilist religious groups who have only one interest, you have nihilist corporations who have only one interest. And in much the same way that the nihilist religious interest groups captured the courts through dark money, Citizens United, Hobby Lobby, you know, whatever, the exact same thing happened, right? This is the Koch brothers flying Clarence Thomas around the country so that their big donors can spend extra money to be in a room with him. And lo and behold, oh, he changes his mind on Chevron, right? He changes his mind on Chevron deference. So I think there's two things I would say, which is this is partly the problem of having kind of taken our eye off the ball while a decades-long project to buy the courts played itself out. And here we are you know, in the last minutes of the game, right? The doomsday clock is ticking and we're starting to see the contours of the plan. And I think the other thing is, and this goes back to where we started on Joe Biden, which is if we were in a normal moment, you and I would be doing nothing but talking weekly about Chevron deference and the major questions doctrine and the fact that entire agencies are on the chopping block in cases before the Supreme Court, right, where lower courts have said, yeah, we don't think that agency should exist anymore. I mean, this is deregulation on steroids. And as you say, I think because we're so 
you know, justifiably exhausted by being in this blender of news, the fact that there's probably the biggest content moderation case, you know, coming before the court next week, this should be front page A1 news. But even, you know, there's no space for front page A1 news unless it's Joe Biden's age. And so I think these structural craters, things that we trusted in, we had a Supreme Court that we believed was at least trying in good faith to solve problems. That's gone. We know that's gone. We now have a Supreme Court that has arrogated unto itself the power to decide what clean water is, what environmental pollution is, what science is, how to do vaccines, you know, how to do foreign and immigration policy, whether or not loan forgiveness should happen. The court does everything. Is it in good faith? I don't think the majority are in good faith, but we don't even know the test anymore. We don't know what the major questions doctrine is. There was an uh, opinion that came down from the Pennsylvania Supreme Court about guns this week, where the court essentially said, we don't freaking understand the test in gun cases. Please explain it. We and, and, And you and I can't explain to each other, I don't think. What the case, what the case law is around church state doctrine anymore. We just know when the court decides the case, they decide a case. And so I think part of the problem that we're having is not just that the court has been utterly captured by very, very, I would say malevolent and effective interests, but that we're still sitting here saying, I think they're going to be in good faith on these two Trump cases. <laughs> like we. Well, also, I mean, you got to admit. <laughs> Democrats are kind of being played for suckers here. And, um, you know, you mentioned church state. And I do think another thing we can note this week is that Christy Nome, one of the people who could be vice president for, for Donald Trump, said, oh, no, the separation of church and state means that the government can't mess with religion. But religion can be as deep into the government as we want it to be. Um, and so that gives an insight into what the views are. But, you know, as you say, this has been a decades-long process. The Dems have been late to the party. The president came into office, and he said, I got to look at the courts. And then he said, yeah, I'm not going to do anything. You know, he appointed a bunch of people. He's sort of playing within the rules. Um, but, you know, he didn't, he, you know, he rejected the idea of changing the size of the Supreme Court and so forth. He appointed an attorney general who feels it's his obligation to bend over so far backwards, not to appear political, that he actually appoints, you know, Trumpist Republicans to do investigations that brought up this whole age thing, even in the midst of concluding Biden hadn't done anything wrong. And so I and I gotta I I, I mean Democrats are kind of saps. <laughs> you know, I I, I just they're not playing by the same rules, you know? So, so so, here's my slight reframe, is that I think, and this is not a heartfelt, teary defense of Merrick Garland by any measure, but I think Democrats have the problem, they have always had the problem of having to fight on two fronts at the same time. And one front is fighting Trump and Trumpism, and the other is repairing and rebuilding trust in institutions of government. And if you are Steve Bannon, flood the zone with shit, or Donald Trump, you know, Navalny is me, 
I am everything. I am I. It's very easy to not fight on any front other than I just want to win all the time. I don't care if at the end of the day, the Justice Department is a smoking ash heap. I don't care, right? That was Bill Barr's view of things. And I think that we are in, and this is really, you know, why my heart goes out to Elena Kagan and Katanji Brown-Jackson and Sonia Sotomayor and even John Roberts, because I think what they are trying to do is simultaneously do good faith law and also not say, holy crap, Clarence Thomas, get off the court. You're killing us here, right? Which is, by the way, the predicate for forcing out Abe Fortas, right? His colleagues got together and said, get out of the court. You're killing us here. And the quote unquote corruption he was accused of was nothing compared to what we're seeing with Justice Thomas and Justice Alito. But I think you just have this problem where the worst thing that could happen, David, is for the entire country to be like, you know what? You're right. My vote doesn't matter, right? You're right. The Justice Department is totally corrupt. And so when you have to do two things at the same time, build something up and tear another thing down, that's just exponentially harder than Donald Trump, who just pees on everything he sees. No, it's absolutely true. And I, you know, I would say, by the way, that as far as, you know, expectations for the fall go, um, uh, you know, I don't know, Biden has a shot at at winning this thing, and the Democrats have a shot at taking back the House. Uh, But there's a lot of skepticism that the Democrats will win the Senate. And if they don't win the Senate, it's just going to prolong the problems that we have in the courts, because they will then stop approving Biden nominations to the courts, and we are going to exacerbate some of these problems. And even if Trump is gone, uh, we are going to have to tangle with um, uh, you know, essentially mega courts for a long time to come. And that's very worrisome. Normally at this point in the podcast, folks, those of you who know, uh, we will take a break and we'll say bye-bye to everybody who's not a member. And we'll say, hey, welcome uh, keep listening to everybody who is a member, but I think this is really important. So I'm just going to say, look, if you're not a member, you should become a member. Go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership. It's five dollars a month. You get to hear stuff like this in its entirety, uh, and we're doing like 17 podcasts a week or something like that now on different topics. So there's a lot of bonus content. So I encourage you to do that. Uh, I, it would be I would be remiss given we have you know 10 10 11 minutes left here. Um, not to talk about the Trump cases. Uh, there are only about 50 of them, so we'll have to go very quickly. But, uh, you know, looming up there, uh, we have this uh, decision about whether or not Trump has uh, the immunity that he claims to have. He, he, he doesn't, but if the court says he does or it wants to discuss it, it could have a big effect on the election. And recently, and I'm sure you've seen this too, you know, on social media, I'm seeing these long tortured interpretations that are going, well, the court should have reached this decision three days ago. And since they didn't, that probably means they're having a discussion about an opinion, but it could be a good opinion or it could be a bad opinion. And here's my reason why I think it's a dissent to a good decision. And, you know, that's why I think the odds are 51, 49. And and I'm like, whoa. You know, how did how did how did we get to this place? Um, but um, you know, we don't know where it's going to turn out. Can we expect this decision in the next few days? 
Okay, so first of all, that whole little intervention you did in that voice, um, that's my whole job. Like, that's my the entirety (laughs) (laughs) of my brain is like, but it's wait for a stay and how many votes for a a grant to hear and what if they expedite. Like, that is the only thing periodically I shower, but all I do is think about the exact same dopey, speculative stuff you just posited. I mean, I think, David, the short answer is we're all doing that. If the court were going to do something quickly, they would have done it already. They've now really, really taken a long time. I think you're exactly right that, you know, all the sports books are trying to figure out. It doesn't look like this is going to be a summary affirmance. It looks like somebody's writing a dissent from something. You know, does that mean they kick it back to Judge Chutkin? And let this thing, you know, play out? Or does it mean they set it for an expedited hearing, in which case, we may not get a trial until summer, right? This is this is what what the bookies are doing. And I urge everyone, you know, to call their bookie. But I think there's a confluence of sort of if you're to back out of the spitballing, I think there's a confluence of a couple of interests. One is the thing we've been talking about for most of the show, which is the court's legitimacy, right? They have among the lowest approval ratings in the history of polling. Uh, There is a sense that they can't just let this go and say, you know what, the D.C. Circuit got it right onward, right? They clearly feel that they're going to have to say a thing. And they're trying to figure out in the midst of, right, having just heard the Colorado um, ballot case about uh, taking Trump off the ballot and I think essentially disgrace themselves if on no other front than the originalism front, right? Oh, never mind originalism. We just don't want to do this, which was the, the sort of tenor of that entire argument. So they have the whole country looking at them. And I think the other issue right now is speed. And I think we mistakenly believe that because they hustled that Colorado case along and did it on an expedited basis, that they sort of institutionally had the same interests that you and I have in getting this thing done before the election. And I think one of the lessons I'm taking from the decision to slow walk this is they don't think this is exigent, not the way they thought the Colorado case was exigent. And they may not, you you and I think it matters to get this thing done before the election. And that's Jack Smith's, you know, entire reason that he wanted to leapfrog the circuit court in the first instance. I'm no longer convinced that all the justices or even most of the justices think that that's of value. And I guess the last thing I would say, and I, I say this all the time, is that we have no idea what other Trump cases are coming, right? These are the first two. There are going to be more. This is literally just an appeal from a ruling about one immunity claim. And I think the court fully understands that they're going to be doing the law of Trump from now until November and probably for some time after. And what they have to figure out in the midst of this is A, what is really exigent? And B, where do they want to spend their capital down. And I think this is really, you know, we, it's clear they don't want to spend any capital on the Colorado elector. Um, well, the once Colorado. again, that was another one of those cases where we assume, because we've been going through and we listen to you as you go through the various permutations in your mind, that all the Democrats are going to go, oh, yeah, this Colorado thing doesn't work. It's going to be nine to zero. It's going to be eight to one. 
Democrats are the 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 liberal justices are going to go along with this. Um, meanwhile, on the other case, we're we're like saying, well, you know, some of these guys are going to play hardball on the other side, and it could drag it out, or or you know, um, I, I, and and obviously would have a significant effect on the election uh, on a on a matter that shouldn't occupy more than a nanosecond of their time right because you know the 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 dc court of appeals it, you know sort of dissected this thing in, in you know with uh, admirable completeness and and essentially said no this is ridiculous this idea doesn't exist couldn't exist. It wouldn't work in our history, you know, the way our country works. Um, and, you know, I mean, how could they even entertain it in, 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 in light of that decision? I mean, what's the rationale that they could embrace? There's no rationale that that D.C. Circuit opinion, which included, by the way, a pretty Trumpy judge, uh, per curiam opinion, uh, is bulletproof. And, and, and that's the point you're making. I think the other point that you're making, and this is worth pulling on for a second, is that the Supreme Court, who two weeks ago heard that Colorado case, right, the, the take him off the ballot case, and essentially even the liberal judges did some version of, well, we don't want to be in the business of giving states the right to knock uh, Trump off the ballot. This is the same court, right, that, that in Bruin said, the majority said, and that's the gun case, right? Don't think about the real life consequences of what this will do. Don't take into account how many people will die. We've got to do originalism here. We've got to go back and look at the text in history. And in Dobbs, don't think about how many pregnant people will die, you know, will hemorrhage and bleed out in the parking lots in Texas. That doesn't matter. We're not doing consequentialism. We're just doing originalism, right? That court, when faced with slam dunk originalist case, section three of the 14th Amendment is like, oh, no, we don't want to do that. We just want to do consequentialism, right? How is it going to look? It's going to be terrible if some states can knock him off the ballot or not. So the first thing I want to say about that is it proves the lie of originalism. Like it really shows how instrumentalist and shabby this is as an overarching theory of how the majority does the Constitution. But also, I think it really goes to what's the other factor here is the court itself and how people think about the court. Nobody in the Supreme Court is going to die because of the Bruin decision. Nobody in the court or is going to die because of the Dobbs decision. But the court is on the hook for these Trump decisions. And so then they become really important. And I just want to make this sort of finer, sort of subtler, but I think important point that the court can be very consequentialist when it comes to the court itself, when it comes to them. I would go a step further. And, you know, you're the expert. Not I'm just spitballing. But originalism is bullshit <laughs> all the time. <laughs> you know, because... That they they reinterpreted the Second Amendment in a way that doesn't actually follow the words on the page, and said that was originalism, right? 
um, they find a way, you know, they on, on, on Dobbs, what they did was they started drawing from hundreds of years of legal history. And they didn't, you know, the guiding principle in that, and I guess in some of these other legal cases, is not actually what's in the Constitution. It's what was in the minds of different lawmakers at different points in our history, and what was the sort of public view of some of these issues at different junctures in our history that then established our historical basis for looking at things the way it is, which is not originalism. That's, you know, his, historical interpretation. It's, it's something else. And so the number of cases where you actually go and somebody says, well, you know, here is Article 3, and these are the words, and this is what they mean, and uh, here are some contemporaneous notes from the people who wrote the amendment that said this is what they mean. That, that that's that's a a, 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 um, a false front to what they're actually doing. Right. I I, I think I snarkily said on someone's show last week that that Colorado case is squarely located on what I call the Supreme Court hopium docket, right? Because it's the docket where this should have worked if we do originalism on its own terms and we have hundreds of the nation's greatest historians signing briefs saying, no, this is really what Section 3 of the 14th Amendment was designed to do. There's no question he's an officer. There's no question this was an insurrection. There's no question this is self-executing. And it doesn't matter because why take originalism on its own terms for a court that was only using it instrumentally to get to certain ends? And so I well, think- And I would go a step further because <laughs> the argument was, wouldn't it be awful if a state could upset the apple cart? But if in a different scenario, a state comes in and says, we don't like these electors, we like a different set of electors, um, or we're going to challenge this, that is a state doing the same thing. And, and, and you know, you kind of think they'd come out in a different place on that because states do have the right to determine who goes and casts their electoral ballots. And in fact, different states do it in very different ways. And we accept that, even though it might tip the scales in one direction or another, thereby having a state, and particularly in elections like this one, which could be 270 to 270, you know, that, that kind of thing, um, make that decision. So that whole argument is completely bogus. Completely bogus. And just remember when the Supreme Court kicked out the center of the Voting Rights Act in the Shelby County case, the animating theory was that states have dignity, right? So states have dignity unless they don't. So, I mean, I, this is, right, this is, as you say, this is a, a fool's errand to try, you know, to nail the court to originalism is quite literally nailing jello to the wall. There's no point in this exercise other than to say that I think this is the year and we have a case that the court has heard but hasn't decided yet about whether a guy who, I I don't want to be laughing, a a guy who 
was subject to domestic violence orders and was waving his gun around, uh, you know, somehow under the originalist theory of there was no such thing as domestic violence, gets to keep waving his gun around. And the court wanted nothing to do with him, right, at least at arguments, because these arguments are obscene. So I think I'm hoping that the coda for this dismal Supreme Court term will be, yes, the 6-3 supermajority wins all the time, but at least originalism has no pants. And if originalism can have no pants going forward, like I'm going to score that a tiny win. Okay. <laughs> um, the, 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 the problem is that even if you expose it for what it is, that doesn't mean they're going to stop with the lie. Um, and it doesn't mean that we're going to, you know, stop with having decisions that are based entirely on, you know, the letters that show up in Clarence Thomas's alphabet soup at lunch, you know, in, in other words, you know, it could be anything. It's just, they're looking for, they're, they're, you know, they're, 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 they're looking for, you know, you talk about venue shopping, they're rationale shopping. They'll go wherever the rationale is. Right. Uh, you know, as always, Dahlia, I could talk to you forever and ever. And there's so many topics and we haven't talked about, you know, Judge Cannon. We haven't talked about the New York case. We haven't talked about Trump going broke. We haven't talked about all these other cases that will be brought against him. But so, you know, I leave those because perhaps we'll be able to coax you back at some point in the future. But for now, I want to thank you very much, Dahlia. Um, and I want to encourage everybody to listen to the Amicus podcast and to read what she is writing and uh, watching her on MSNBC, where she is a regular contributor and source of light and wisdom. And, uh, and, and, and hopefully she will come back here and we will continue to follow these things. Um, until then, thanks everybody. Bye bye.